Well, I expect your attention span should be really, really good this morning, sitting on nice, firm cushions on the pews. No more 30 years of wearing, being wore out, nice and firm. If this is your first time here, we had the pews recovered this last week and some new carpet put in, so it's got kind of that new car smell going on right now. <laughs> kind of cool. Well, you've heard this old adage, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, correct? So when some guys call you up, and you're a radio host in California, and Matt Witten and Rick Dyer are on the other side of the phone, and they say to you, hey, uh, guess what? We've got Bigfoot in our freezer. Would you like to buy him? You know, the clue phone should start ringing right away. But if you're not familiar with this story, it made national headlines. As a matter of fact, I think Matt and Rick should be given the Salespeople of the Year Award. In the midst of the height of the political campaign, the Olympics taking place in Beijing, Russia invades Georgia, and Matt and Rick make headlines <laughs> because they called somebody and convinced them they had Bigfoot in the freezer. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. As a matter of fact, they found out that it was a costume after they got somebody to pay him a couple thousand dollars for it. And they went to the house where these guys lived and they thawed the freezer out and sure enough, it was a rubber suit sitting inside that freezer. Do you really believe, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? That's the question I asked you back in January when we started studying Genesis. Because of the things like the Bigfoots of this world, we live in a nation of skeptics. And I don't doubt for a moment that you work with individuals who are in your office setting or in your factory or perhaps in your home in your neighborhood who say to you, do you really believe that about the Bible? Do you really believe that it's real? And sometimes it makes you want to shrink away. But other times it makes you want to stand up and say, yeah, how great is our God. I really, really believe it. So I asked you that question as we started Genesis in the first phase, chapters 1 through 6, talking about the creation account. And then I asked you this question in April just after Easter. When we started this foundation series, can you defend what you believe? Do you know why you believe what you believe? And so we started studying over a course of 16 different messages, this foundation series about the life of Abraham, starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Now why spend 16 weeks studying the life of a guy who lived 4,000 years ago. Well, we read in Scripture that everything that was written was written for our benefit, for our encouragement, so that we might have a hope, a hope for the future, so that we can learn from their life. So as we look back at somebody like Abraham, we would say, okay, there is someone I can learn from, even though he lived 4,000 years ago. Most of us would just be happy to have our names written in the Bible someplace. Wouldn't you love to open this up and say, Jerry Smith, wow. Vicki Palmer, 
cool. That'd be fun to see. Alexander the Great was so enthusiastic that he'd heard that he was referred to in the Bible that when he conquered the Middle East, he went into Jerusalem and met with the priests, and they showed him the writings from Daniel where he was referred to. And it really puffed his ego up as if it wasn't big enough already. Largest known conqueror of the world. Wouldn't it be cool to see your name written in Scripture? Except for maybe if there was 13 chapters written about you that recorded all of your failures, all of your mistakes, but along the way, all of your victories, the way that you went from an idol worshiper to a follower of God, so much so that you're the most revered person in the Old Testament, and to the Jews this day, they call him Father Abraham. Wouldn't that be cool? So here's the sum total of this man's life. We come to Genesis 25 this morning, and this is all that's said about him. It'll appear upon the screen. Genesis 25, 7 says this, These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah. I am amazed at the simplicity of Scripture. 175 years old, and he gets an obituary that's about this big. After 13 chapters are written about him, that's all we're told. So to help us remember what we learned over these last 16 foundational messages, I want to do an overarching recap with you this morning. One of my favorite classes when I was in Bible college was when I'd go sit down with a professor and near a final exam, he would do a recap of everything that we had learned in the last section to help us be prepared for the exam. Now, in respect to the fact that classes start next week for high school students and junior high students and elementary students, there will be no exam, all right? But this is a recap to help you remember the things that we learned. So you're going to hear a lot of one-liners this morning, things that I thought were the major observations going from chapter 12 to chapter 24. So I don't know if you're going to be able to keep up in your Bible because we're going to be jumping from chapter to chapter. You're welcome to try, but all of it's going to be up on the screen. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, they are in the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't own one, you are more than welcome to take one of those with you when you leave today. Okay, it started off back in April, first week after, after Easter, I said to you that Stephen in the New Testament, when he was about to be murdered, when he was going to be stoned, made a defense for his faith. He could defend why he believed what he believed. And what did he use for his defense of the faith? he went all the way back to the story of Abraham to explain to everybody why he believed what he believed about Jesus. And just before he was executed for his faith, he argued the case of Abraham to all those around him who already knew the story because he wanted to say, this is why I believe what I believe. And then we find in Genesis chapter 12, the next week when we launched out, God calling Abraham, and this is what he called Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
My major observation that week was that God calls every one of us to great adventures. Every one of us. How we respond is up to us. He called Abraham out. Abraham was no different than any of you sitting here this morning. And he said, I'm going to call you to a great adventure. And along the way, this is what Abraham learned. His life was way bigger than his life. You get that? It was more than just what took place that day when God called him out. His life was really big, and it was going to have far-reaching implications. Your life is bigger than your life. And the next thing that we pulled out of that week was, when God calls, that is the moment that you respond. You don't wait till the timing is right for you. If God's calling you, it's because he wants you to respond at that moment. Now, the next week, Abraham made a mistake. We discover in verse 13, he said this to his wife. Verse 13, chapter 12, Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live. If you were here that Sunday, you remember what happened is Pharaoh wanted his wife. And he didn't want to be executed. So he said, tell them you're my sister. And then they won't kill me so that it may go well with me. What we observed in that week was that throughout history, beginning in the garden, from the garden of Eden to the garden of Gethsemane, there has always been a threat to God's plan. Something trying to intervene and throw God's plan off track. And this is part of that threat. There was a severe famine, and Abraham left and went down to an area that he wasn't supposed to go to and went to Egypt and got thrown off track. Here's the major takeaway of that week. When you disobey, immediately recognize it. Come back to God and get back on track instead of living in that disobedience. Abraham recognized his disobedience, and he went back to the beginning, and he started all over. Chapter 13, verse 5, up on the screen. Now Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while they were dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. He was exceedingly heavy with wealth. That's what Scripture tells us. God blessed him so much that he was exceedingly weighted down with wealth. And in this chapter, there was an interesting transition that took place. Abraham went from trying to be the manipulator to manage the circumstances into the one who could step back and say, God, you're in the midst of this. I'm going to let you take control of it. Chapter 14, there was a major declaration of war, a multinational conflict, and it swept right past Abraham's home. And it dragged him into the midst of it because he had to take off and go and confront five powerful kings and rescue people, and bring them back, and restore them. And in the midst of that, what did they try and do? The kings who were rescued tried to bribe him, and give him reward. And what did he do? He said, I will not take even a shoelace from your shoe. As a matter of fact, it says this in verse 22, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, the God, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong, or anything that is yours. This is the takeaway from that week. This is especially important for you that are students in school. You want to go back and study an important chapter for you before you go to a party on Friday night, or before you're hanging out with your friends on Saturday night? Abraham decided 
before he went to battle, before he ever returned those captives to that city, how he was going to relate to God. I have taken an oath before my God. Decide before you get in the car. Decide before you walk in the door of the house where that party's at. How are you going to represent God in those circumstances? Next week, chapter 15, I find to be the most fascinating week. I think every Christian should spend a lot of time studying chapter 15. And this is the way it starts off. After these things, after what things? After Abraham had rescued Lot, after these things, Genesis 15, 1, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham had a lot of reason to doubt by this point, didn't he? Because he was an old man, and he still did not have an heir. And God had promised to make him a great nation, a powerful leader, and yet he didn't have a son of his own. And then along the way, we learn some new words. And the first new word that we learn pops up in the midst of this verse in which God responded to him. It says that, And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. What was the first word that we learned when we went through this series, if you can remember it? Naah. Now. Now God took him outside. That word only occurs four times in the Old Testament. When na'ah is attached to an action-intensive verb, it's something that only God can do. Only four times in the Old Testament, and this is one of them. God says, I'm about to do something that's really significant. Na'ah, we're stepping into it, Abraham, because you're about to see me do something really powerful in your life. That's where that word comes from. And then verse 6, this is Abraham's response to that. This is still in verse chapter 15. Then he believed in the Lord and God. He reckoned it to him as righteousness. I told you at that time, that's the first time the word believe ever occurs in the Bible. And it's the first time righteousness ever occurs in the Bible. Why is that important? Because that word believe, when it says Abraham believed God is the same step that some of you have taken when you decided to follow Jesus Christ. It's not, I believe God exists, because even the demons believe that and shudder according to Scripture. This believe, Amon, let me illustrate it for you. I was here when the guys built the stage extension over here, when the contractors were working on this. I watched them with hammers and nails pound it together. I knew that it would hold me. I amond it. There was circumstances in which I went through that proved to me that was capable of holding me. Abraham amond God because he'd been walking with him and he believed him and he trusted him. That's the point that some of you have stepped into. Now God shows up and then he says to him this word, first time it occurs, I am Yahweh. I am Yahovah. 
I am the covenant-keeping God. And Abraham answers him and says, how can I know that these things that you're about to do are really, really going to happen? How can I believe it? In verse 8, he says, he said, O Lord God, how may I know? That's an ancient way of asking this question. How can I really believe that what I really believe is really real? How can I really believe this God? And the reason I've told you that I think chapter 15 is the most significant chapter in the book of Genesis for what takes place in Abraham's life is because of what unfolds next when God shows up in the Shekinah glory. And you remember the flame and the sacrifice of the animals and God passed through and Abraham encountered the Shekinah glory of God. And God made the covenant, a covenant that man could not make. Then we step all the way forward into chapter 16, and we find that Abraham makes another mistake. He's human. And God is never caught by surprise. And so Abraham finds himself always having to start over again. Abraham failed. He goes back and he returns and starts over. And then comes Genesis chapter 17. Verse 1 says this, Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Now I asked you this question a month and a half ago, I'm going to ask you again. Anybody want to sign up for that? Walk before me and be perfect. My hand would go down too, because we can't attain perfection, can we? But when we understand this word, the next word that I taught you, tamayim, what we understood was that God was saying, walk before me, understanding who I am in complete sincerity, with all the sincerity of your heart, wholly dedicated to me. Walk before me and stay focused on me. You understand who I am, Abraham. Walk before me. And then God says to him, is anything too difficult for the Lord? You feel the weight of that question? Especially when you're facing circumstances like you might have come in here with this morning? Does it seem impossible to believe that what you really believe is really real? And you have to ask yourself, is anything too hard for the Lord, or is he just ignoring me? And that's what Abraham was dealing with in this chapter. God, are you ignoring me? And God said, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And the next thing we see happening in this chapter is the response of a holy God, a righteous God, to sin. The most politically incorrect chapter, according to today's standards in the United States, when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. The response of a holy God to sin, that there is wrath and judgment. And so we learned this fourth new word. I'll bet you remember this one. Yare. You remember that one? Say it with me. Yare. And what it means is this, if you weren't here that day. Awesome! I'm not talking about 
awesome on the skateboarding ramp. Or awesome, totally cool. It's not that. It's Yahweh. I walk in fear of him. Not because he wants to smash me and crush me, but because he is a righteous and holy and just God. And we find in the end of that chapter this telling insight. We're not told what Abraham's thinking, but he gets up the next morning and he goes and looks down in the valley to see what this righteous God did. Verse 27. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And you can hear echoing in your mind this question that Abraham asked of God just before the destruction. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And that's the outcome. The judge of all the earth does do right. Jump all the way forward into one of the last chapters, chapter 22, and I find that to be perhaps the most difficult chapter for me of the Old Testament in which God asked Abraham at 112 years of age to take his son, his only son, his beloved son Isaac, and offer him up as a sacrifice. I still to this day, as much as I know about Scripture, struggle with how I would respond if God asked something that monumental of me. Chapter 22 and verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. We recognize that day, and I hope you still remember it today, that this kind of faith, this kind of belief, takes you to a crisis in your life. What Henry Blackaby calls the crisis of belief. This is a true crisis. God, are you really asking me to do this? Are you really asking me to pick up my family and move? Are you really asking me to turn my back on this friend because of the way they live? God, are you really asking me to quit this job even though I have no promise of another job? God, are you really asking me to go and seek forgiveness from someone I didn't even offend, but yet they've got something between you and me? Are you really asking me? Those are crises of belief. Is it really you, God, telling me to do this? And that's what you find Abraham facing in the midst of this. And so you ask yourself this question. In the midst of chapter 22, I hear this one screaming out of that chapter. Is God sovereign or not in your life? Because if he's sovereign and he's telling you to do something, you have no choice. You have to respond to what he's telling you to do. I noticed this about Abraham. These are the two concluding thoughts I have coming out of those 16 weeks about Abraham personally. He was really deliberate about his obedience to God. He was very, very intentional about how he was going to carry out what God called him to do. Second thing is, he was really deliberate about planning for future generations. 
about setting himself apart and saying, God, I've walked in your footsteps so long, 100 years, that I can trust you for anything. And so if you tell me to do it, I'm doing it. So we come all the way back to Genesis 25, where we started this morning, with his obituary. It'll be up on the screen again, Genesis 25:7. This is what was written about him. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah. So I thought, hmm, if I open up a newspaper today, what would this obituary look like? If you don't know what an obituary is, maybe you're a younger person and you never turn to that portion in the paper. An obituary is where they list everything about a dead person, okay? How they lived, why they lived, who the relatives are that are surviving, when they died. That's an obituary. And that's what this looks like here. And so these are the things I pulled out. He died in a good old age. He had walked with the Lord 100 years. He was called the friend of God. James said that about him. And then it ends this way. It says that he died full of years and he was gathered to his people. Now that phrase really stuck with me this week, that he was gathered to his people. And this is what I want you to leave with here today that he was gathered to his people in such a way doesn't mean that he was taken in the tomb and buried with his wife. It doesn't mean that when he died, they took him back to the Ur of Chaldees where he originated from. If you've lived your entire life with godly people, perhaps everyone in this room is a God follower. They've dedicated themselves to Christ. And when we die, we're all godly people. We will all be together in eternity. That's what it means to be gathered to your people. That's the Old Testament definition way of saying you're going to be with godly people. So Abraham was gathered with his people. That's what it says, 25 verse 8. This is the first time that it occurs in Scripture. Now, in the Old Testament, I'm just going to go into theology for just a moment because we don't have time for this. But I want you to get this big picture stuff in your mind. We'll come back to it eventually. In the Old Testament, to be gathered to your people means you went to the place called Sheol. And in the New Testament, it's called Hades. 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 You can pronounce it multiple ways. But in the Greek, they called it Hades. And this is what the literal interpretation of it is. It's an unseen place of the departed souls referred to as hell. Now, did Abraham go to hell? No. He went to Hades. And Jesus gives us some insight into this very place that Abraham went to. Because this is not the end of the story that he was buried and that he was gathered to his people. We get to see the rest of the story. And I didn't know how else to do this other than to take you to this passage where Jesus was explaining to people what it was like where Abraham was at. And so I decided, let's go look at Luke so we can really wrap a bow tie around this life of Abraham. So the next time we hear of Abraham, 
1,400 years later, he's in Hades. And Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Son of God, knows everything, is talking about Abraham. So you want to pay special attention to this. Here it comes. Luke 16, 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Ooh, is that not nasty? Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus at his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life, this was not a God follower. This was not someone who belonged to Christ. And he's speaking to him this way, so don't confuse this. Child, remember that during your life, you received good things, your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Now listen very, very closely to these next verses. This is where the godly living Abraham sets a pattern for us so that we don't end up like this Lazarus. Verse 27, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, those things that were written before were written for our instruction. That's what he's saying. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. To be gathered to someone's bosom is an ancient way of saying, the person that they're referring to, Abraham, is in a place of being revered. It means that those individuals are sitting at his side. He's a respected, exalted individual in eternity. And people are gathered to his side. And Lazarus was one of those individuals. And Abraham engages in this dialogue because he's on the blessing side of Hades, and he can see across this great chasm into hell where agony and punishment is going on and has this dialogue. Why is all that important? 
how will you apply that to your life today? 16 weeks of studying about this guy and where he ended up. What we just read about Jesus speaking about Hades and agony. Because as followers of Christ, if what we're about to read next doesn't create a passion in you to tell others about Christ, if for those of you who are in here who have not decided to follow Christ, you better pay very, very close attention to these next verses because it's the follow-up of what just took place in Hades. Maybe you've read it before, but I encourage you to read it very closely with me. We're just about done here, so track with me on this. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books. Abraham, Lazarus, the beggar, the rich man in hell, all judged according to what was written in these books. Pick it up again. Judged from the things which, which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades, Hades, gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. One day, you will be gathered to your people. Who will you be gathered to? Because all the godly people, the ones who claim Jesus Christ, they're gathered into eternity, the blessing side, in heaven, permanent home. Those who reject Jesus, your friends who are living ungodly lifestyles, are going to stand in front of that same throne. One day you will be gathered to all your people. Which side are you going to be on? That's the great adventure that God's calling you to. Do you align yourself with Christ? You say, no, I'm going about it on my own. So these are my three major takeaways before I let you leave. Number one, when God calls, that is the moment that you respond. When he says, this is what I want you to do, that is the moment. And your life, is way, way bigger than your life. It's far larger than you comprehend. And you can have such impact. And thirdly, it is the nature and the character of God to provide a way for us, independent of us. All we have to do is respond and align ourselves with God. You pray with me.
Father, we have digested a lot this morning. I ask that you make application for us in such a way that we don't forget these things, myself included, God. We're going to move on to new texts, and we're going to study new things, and we're going to learn more about Jesus. But for this time that we spent, God, we ask for your blessing on it, that it would stay in our memory banks in such a way that we find ourselves seeking after those things that were written about these great individuals so that, God, we can look forward with a hope towards the future and conform ourselves to be more like you.